0: Had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now.
1: Welcome to Transformation and Change Radio. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear, Center for Transformation and Change. I'm very excited about our guest today. We'll be talking about what can we do now, really focusing on white leaders, change agents, allies. How do we partner with other whites, partner with folks of color, indigenous folks to create systemic change? I don't know about you, but I was like, early on in my career, I'm like, I can do this when I hadn't done the inner self-work and healing I needed. So Dr. Victoria Ferris could not be more excited to partner with you. I was trying to remember, we may have brushed paths, but I remember clearly at the end of NASPA student affairs conference, you found me and we had this phenomenal conversation, which left me feeling I wanted to continue living, working and learning from you. Um, And since then, We've had a chance over several years to work together, but you were in higher ed in student affairs, really doing full person, full bodied work and social justice work. And then in 2017, which didn't sound long ago until I counted up over four years ago, you started full time consulting. I am so excited to have you here. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you. I'm so excited too. That um, I, I stopped you on a corner crossing the street at, at NASPA um, and that was over five years ago now. It kind of feels like yesterday and also like I've just known you forever. But.
1: And I relate as well. And the more I get to know you, I mean, we have some differences and we'll get to some of those. For instance, your work really at the national level, sitting in, getting arrested at the Capitol we'll get to that. But for now, could you tell us a bit about yourself? I'd like our listeners to know a bit more about how growing up, maybe fueled your work in the world, how you're doing in this pandemic and over a year since George Floyd was murdered. And so I still want to call it renewed time of racial reckoning. And I am seeing some backslash. Look back. There it is. White leaders saying did I really say I want to do anti-racism work? I think I was kidding. So tell us a bit about yourself.
2: This, it's always the hardest question to start with, I think. Um, but thanks. Uh, you know, I grew up, uh, the, the more um, I, I think, the older I get, the more into the work I get, the more I raise my own kids, the more I think my parents were really unique and um, impacted how I see the world and who I am in the world. Um, because I had parents who were far from perfect, but sort of disruptors in their own right. Like my parents um, were hippies. My parents didn't like being told what to do. My parents got married kind of young, so they didn't have to live with their parents and, and be controlled, right? Um, and so I remember super clearly in the late 80s, I was probably eight or nine years old. Um, my, at the dinner table, my parents talking to us about the AIDS crisis and what was true and what was false. And just being very clear, like people are going to say this and that is not true. And people are going to say this and that is not true. And at the time, you know, like you think your parents are just boring and like just like everyone else's parents. And now I'm like, my parents were like really engaged. Um, and so again, you know, I, it's certainly far from perfect. There was a lot of kind of themes of white saviorism in my upbringing, a lot of themes of there was this racist history, but then Martin Luther King sort of saved everything and now things are different. And we grew up, I grew up as a young kid right outside of Washington DC in the suburbs in the most, probably the most racially diverse um, place I've ever lived and and um, I, I then Um, in middle school moved to New York and have lived most of my life in the suburbs outside of New York City. And while there's a lot of racial diversity in New York, the socioeconomic implications are pretty profound. And what I noticed about Northern Virginia was that wasn't so. Our houses all look the same, even where our families look different. And I think that that had an impact too in a way that I didn't fully understand because I didn't grow up seeing what I saw when I moved to New York which was there were black and brown kids in my school and they lived here and I lived here and this person lived here right and um and so I think all of that kind of plays plays a role and I've just always been a really curious kid and um was told I wore my heart on my sleeve and had rose-colored glasses uh which the world tried to take away and then I found therapy and have reinvited back into my life because I think rose-colored glasses are a moderately good way to live sometimes. Um, and I, as you said, I had a career in higher ed. I, I, um, my mom used to tell people I went to college and I loved it so much that I never left, which was <laughs> mostly true. I um, worked my way up uh, managing residence halls and doing student conduct and a lot of student support work. Um, and again, saw firsthand the ways that systemic inequities were impacting um, students, first gen students, students of color, um, queer and trans students. Um, and grew increasingly impatient, as you well know, as an internal change agent. And then when I got my doctorate, um, my research focused on the role that white folks could play in disrupting systems of racism in the workplace. Um, and the timing just all felt exactly right. What the research I would collected felt too big to keep contained in any one place. And I felt like I had been invested into by so many people in such profound ways that I just felt like the next best thing was for me to pay that forward by getting in front of as many people as possible to talk about what was really happening around us in in workspaces in higher education and beyond and what we could do about it. Um, And then, then somewhere along there, Trump got elected and I started getting arrested and really making trouble. Um, and I think have found the power of my own voice in that, um, and the beauty of community in that. And, um, yeah, I guess, and then, and then the pandemic happened and, um, I would say that, um, at this point I feel frustrated in a way that I didn't anticipate, um, because I really had a lot of hope. I mean, I remember saying to folks and, and probably you are one of them, Kathy, like in August and September, like this is different. It feels different this time. Right. I, I like white people are actually in the streets. White people are actually like it, And I had a sense of hope that I, I didn't think was naive um, and I, I still don't think it was. Um, and I think that a lot of those really well intentioned white folks underestimated what it actually means to to put those values into practice. Um, and so that's, I think, where we, we kind of find ourselves today, right? Where I think a lot of folks are still grappling with that. And, and I find myself grappling with like, what do we do about that? And how, how can we support? How can we continue kind of building momentum and rallying folks?
1: And that might be societally inside organizations. Um, I'm struck that I grew up with very colluding parents, um, No politics, no social justice conversation, um, lots of fear-based, and so to hear how your folks were interrupting, disrupting some of the homophobic, transphobic dynamics around AIDS and who knows what else, I just, I'm hoping there's more white folk that grew up in families like yours and even the younger folks than you, Um, and I join you with, Naite might be it. There were particularly black women who were just shaking their head at me, July, August, September saying, all right, Kathy, maybe you're right, but we've seen this before. And I was riding that wave. And I do believe individuals have shifted. I have seen organizations shift, um, but it's gonna take a lot more focus. You call yourself in your bio, a dis- and I experience you as disruptor, truth teller, justice seeker working to shine light on truth that can be hard to recognize. And I'm running into white leaders who are doing the, I'm shocked, I'm surprised, I thought things were good, we do our best, how come y'all don't appreciate us? That's lately what I'm hearing. So tell us more about disrupting, especially in this context, truth-telling, and what it might look like for disruptors inside and outside organizations for white identified folk.
2: Yeah. You know, I think the word disruption gets a bad rap because we think about it as like, um, and, and and don't get me wrong, I like this kind of disruption too, but like shutting down the freeway, right? Um, but disruption also looks like not letting your family dinner have subtle or not so subtle racist connotations and coded language that doesn't get disrupted, right? Races, uh, I mean, disruption for me, I think most consistently looks like Um, inquiring with my kids about how the stories that they're getting at school and how we can wrestle with them differently, right? It looks like me asking my kids pretty regularly, and who do you think told that story? And what version of that story is missing, right? And so I think um, for me, disruption first happened on a deeply personal level. I was 30 years old. I um, had a a newborn and I was pregnant and my mom got cancer and she died Mm. 10 months later. Mm. And it was in that process, I, you know, I've never felt more vulnerable, right? I, I can't, I don't know that I would have honestly had kids, probably certainly not at that time if I had thought I would be doing it without my mother, right? And so it felt so vulnerable. And I remember so clearly one day my mom said to me, um, all we have left is authenticity. So mm-hmm. let's just talk about it. Mm-hmm. And it was so brave. And I think it really landed with me because it, it did strip away everything else. And when you strip away everything else, the truth is what's there. And what we do with the truth is to me, what authenticity looks like. And, you know, I think the truth has become weaponized. I mean, we see like the 1619 project, it's been weaponized. And I'm like, the truth doesn't have to mean anything unless we make it mean something. And so for me, I use those words because I've never really known how to lie. Like as a teenager, I tried it once, it didn't work. It's just not in my body. But, but I think disrupting and truth-telling can be done with profound love, and with grace, and with compassion, and with a warm smile, and um, you know, with love. right? And, and I think that love is one of the greatest like, acts of disruption, and of justice, and of truth-telling. And so um, I like those words, because sometimes you'll find me disrupting in big ways with a loud voice. And sometimes it's just listening and saying, like I hear you, I've been there. And what can we do different this time? um but i think that that those are some of the things to me that are core to the world that i want to live in is people who are willing to wrestle with the truth even when it's painful and who are willing to show up authentically like my mom in that moment even when it is so hard and so vulnerable that we can recognize that those are the most impactful opportunities
1: so why do you think so many of us white people resist truth-telling from folk of color indigenous folk Discount, dismiss, hear white change agents who are speaking truth to power. Um, I know in my own life, I held on to the belief that I was smart and better than, and I had done it by myself, um, pulled myself by my boots. So why do you think, as you interact with so many white leaders, change agents, folks inside organizations, why are we as a group resisting truth, disruption, and seeking status quo comfort?
2: Well, I think we 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 can't tell ourselves the truth, and I think until we can receive the truth with ourselves, it's it's very very difficult. I won't say impossible, but very difficult to receive it from other people. And I think especially difficult to receive it from other people that we've been told aren't as good, smart, worthy, deserving, right? And so, um, but I think the hardest part is our own willingness to tell the truth. Because what you just said is you were taught. All these things about yourself. And I mean, it has not been a fun path for me. I'm, I'm willing to guess the same for you, like, realizing, like, I didn't pull myself up by anything, right? I had access. I grew up in a zip code. My parents went to college, I, right? And, and um, you know, I often use the example of a student loan debt. Like, I have enough student loan debt to own quite a lovely home somewhere and instead I live in a small apartment and pay Sally Mae more than I'd care to and the reason and so that doesn't often feel like privilege right I think that I hear this narrative like I had to work so hard I'm gonna I'm constantly on the hamster wheel and the only reason I've had access to that kind of student loan is because my grandparents owned a home and could co-sign on my loans. And my grandparents owned a home because they benefited from the GI Bill, which was deeply racist and provided white families access to public funds, which we don't want to talk about, but, right. And so I think though, it takes owning the truth about ourselves and the truth that the things we've been taught have been lies, that they've been harmful, that I've caused harm, that I, you know, My ancestors, I'm I'm aware, but you know, my, for generations, my ancestors enslaved people and ran plantations, my, anything that I have has come at the expense of so many other people's humanity. And it is painful to sit with that and to recognize it. And I think until we're willing to see the truth in ourselves and for ourselves, we're not going to hear from somebody else. And I think that that's one of the really profound, often invisible ways that whiteness works.
1: My guess is this is tied to your research because you really had powerful conversations with folks of color to hear their thoughts, their hopes, what white people need to be doing differently. And my guess is a theme of that is our own self-work and healing work. So we tell ourselves the truth, recognize systemic racism, white supremacy, how we're just have, at least I do, still have racist thoughts, white supremacist beliefs that I'm pulling out every day. Could you continue weaving? I don't have to say nothing. You could talk the whole time, but thank you for letting me come in occasionally. Um, Tell us a little more about what you found in your research and particularly what's critical these days for white allies, change agents, and leaders who may not quite be ready to make that shift they need to make.
2: You know, it's so interesting. I literally just this morning published a blog post where I kind of talk about some of this because... My research, so I did, I spoke exclusively to folks of color about their experiences with workplace racism and what they wished their white colleagues and supervisors would do about it. And what came from it was just this ex- extraordinary like map. It feels like a roadmap of um, what what allyship, what effective allyship could look like. Um, and when at the time when I was doing my research, most of the research on allyship had been authored by white people and I, like fundamentally philosophically don't believe that white people define what what allyship is right that's like so self-indulgent um and so what i wanted to do was hear not what i think it should be but like what are the people who are experiencing the harm saying right and and there was this um just real clear uh path of really understanding that was like a really big takeaway i wish white people could really understand the pain, the impacts, the emotional toll, the physical toll, right? Um, you know, the, the the impact it has on my family, me as a parent, uh, driving home after a day, and then, you know, interacting with, um, having to be mindful of staying safe. Like I could leave work and go to the mall and nobody's following me around except to try to help me, right? And so this like idea of, I just wish white people could understand, they could get it. And I wish that they would talk to each other, right? You know, white people love to say to me, "This was so racist" or "This happened," but like they don't want to say it to each other, and that's not actually shifting the tide. So, some of my biggest takeaways were uh, the lack of meaningful understanding, of of emotional understanding, of impact, um, and um, the sort of self-indulgent way that we and I did this forever like want our black friends and colleagues and coworkers to know that we notice without actually having to take on any consequences or changes in our own lives um, and so the big takeaways were if, if we're talking about allyship that looks like a shift in emotional labor that looks like a shift in you know, not demanding folks of color be the only ones talking about this, but that we're taking on that labor. So white people interacting with other white people was a big one, and action. So it was meaningful understanding and action. Um, But it's only, I would say, through this past year that I have, in in observing some of the things we talked about of this like momentum that looked bigger than I had seen previously, and now this backpedaling, that I think I started to connect things I was doing in my personal life, therapy, healing, a lot of deep healing work um, after leaving, you know, leaving higher ed, working for myself, healing up that hustle culture, capitalism, like all those things that I think now I see how those two things are connected, that I I do think that one of the big missing pieces is we can't intellectualize ourselves out of white supremacy. And I think for the longest time, that's what I wanted to do. That's what I see white leaders want to do. They want to look at a policy. They want to look at the handbook. They want to say what's wrong with it and they want to change it, but they don't want the lunchroom to feel any different. Mm-hmm. And they don't want the, the you know, the campus to feel any different, the office to feel any different. They don't want to feel any different. They don't want to live in a different neighborhood. They don't want to show up differently at PTA meetings. Right. And I think I don't actually, this is just my hunch at this point, but I don't actually think it's because they don't want to. But I think that's where the gap is of telling ourselves the truth that we can't do that from our headspace. We can only do it when we let ourselves really see the humanity in other people and our flawed, our own flawed humanity to be able to want to make it different, to be different.
1: I could be wrong, but you're having me think about Part of that is to really realize we're not smarter, better, we're humans together. And it might even look like this for a while, meaning that folk of color, indigenous folk actually have far greater competence on how to thrive, survive in the systems we have, how to change them with lots of wisdom. And it's only been relatively recently, I've been on a journey to listen to, agree with, follow the leadership of It was about a year ago, I was in a workshop, uh, African-American woman who's 15, 17 years younger, and I truly felt in my body what it meant to know I'm not as competent in, in this moment in general. She's incredibly competent. I will follow the leadership of, partner with. I've been using those words for a long time, but I have. It's been a painful continuing journey of really listening to, following leadership of. And I wonder if that's a key for white leaders, white allies, change agents, managers, supervisors, colleagues that are not white allies yet to really dismantle. And so many can't even use these terms: racist beliefs, white supremacist attitudes. They think it's the KKK, the Nazis. So could you talk a bit about the healing work that you've done, the healing work you do with organizations, what we need to do, what the truth telling might look like because organizations are listening like, all right, all right, I want to do it, but how?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, everything you said, I completely agree with. I think everything I've learned, not everything, but so much of what I've learned about healing, about joy, about community, about authentic relationships, about dismantling systems has come from Black women, people of color, and trans folk, right? Because of what you just said, right? There are are so many folks who experience so much violence and harm from these systems and yet figure out how to live with joy and Mm. grace and dignity, even in pockets. I don't want to make it. I don't want to glorify that experience because nobody should have to do that. And the fact that those folks can showed me what was possible, that the idea that... um, like we shouldn't all have access to abundant joy to me is a byproduct of white supremacy. And I think I think that that's an important part of this too. I think that, um, I think for me, it's been important to think about what does liberation look like? And I don't know, again, that's not a, I don't know the answer. I look to other people and what I see in communities that I share space with is liberation looks like joy. It looks like walking down the streets and knowing you're safe. And you can do that however you want to, as long as you're not harming somebody else, right? And so when I start to think about those principles, then how do I embody them? But not just how do I embody them? It's like, how do I pair that embodiment with the expansiveness that we could all embody them. And I think that, um, and I did this for a long time, like I think I felt guilty about any privilege that I had or any joy that I had and like how can I take a weekend off and just like play in the woods with my kids when other people are experiencing? and I'm like I want everyone to be able to play in the week in the woods with their kids if they want to or whatever right. Um, and I, I do think that it's been in in recognizing what that community and joy looks like and what liberation can feel like that has helped me feel motivated. Because I, I don't think that as so being socialized as a white person that was part of my upbringing to understand.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
2: think it is one of the ways that white supremacy harms white people because our humanity gets lost in the system too, um, And so how does that shift into organizations, I think is tricky. And I think the first and biggest and probably hardest part is there is no right way to do it. And, um, you know, I have that daily chat with myself. Like, you know, I just told you, I posted this blog post. And part of that conversation with myself is like, this is my story. And it will resonate or it won't. And some people will disagree. And I will listen and and maybe I'll get better as a result, or maybe we'll just hold space for multiple perspectives. And I don't think that organizations are built to navigate things that way. And I think that um, what I've seen is folks want, folks want an end goal, right? They they want to bring in a consultant and say like this, this and this, and then you have this and, um, you know, so often I'll do a workshop or I'll kind of start the work. And I, I, I partner often with my colleague, Jen Fry. And we joke, we always keep room in our, our schedule for the week after our first long workshop because inevitably the CEO, one of the leaders is like in a panic and needs to get on our calendar because they're like, people are spinning over here. And we're like, perfect. Right. like I think that what what I wish folks would get a little bit more on board with is the understanding that this is a process of muddling. And if we could all just get more comfortable muddling together and listening together and not expecting it to be neat and tidy, we could make the process even a little bit fun because we could laugh at like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And imagine leaving a boardroom where nobody knows the answer but you just talked about some important things and maybe you made progress and maybe you didn't. But like that, I mean, just saying that, I can hear the anxiety and like the tension in people's stomachs who have been taught that if you didn't follow the agenda, you didn't have a successful meeting. Um, But I think we have to find the balance of, centering the voices and perspectives of those who are most harmed by the system and not demanding it and creating first a container where folks know that that investment is worthwhile because you're going to do something about it because what i'm hearing now is like you had me at three listening sessions i poured my heart out and you haven't done anything about it and that is makes this place even more hostile than it was a year ago so i think the 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 action is essential
1: in partnership following leadership of the folks most harmed hearing mm-hmm. as we go to break how can people find you learn with you your blog website how can people find you
2: yeah you can find me my website is victoriaferris.com um and i i'm not the best at social media with the exception of instagram i enjoy um playing on instagram so you can find me at dr victoria ferris on instagram also
1: Well, when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Victoria Ferris. As always on the radio show website, you can get access to a couple of my now open source courses on facilitating wide accountability groups, navigating difficult situations. All my books, Kathy O'Bear, Center for Transformation Change. We will be back in a few minutes.
0: We remember a time when you could simply form a thought and it would manifest. The harmony was forgotten, but it is returning now. The Power of Inspiration and Awakening Radio with Juliet Griffin on TransformationTalkRadio.com each second and fourth Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific. We'll take you on adventures through the heart and spirit exploring who we once were. This intuitive healer studied under the guidance of wolves, learning from their wisdom to master a higher frequency for a new state of mind. Visit OneTrueSelf.com. Get empowered. not just talk conversation for profound self-awareness stick with us your best life awaits on transformationtalkradio.com
1: thank you for coming back I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear here with the wonderful Dr. Victoria Ferris Ferris Consulting and that's F-A-R-R-I-S in case you're still trying to find her on the websites. We left off beginning to look much more at the work whites we need to do internally. And that might be folks that are multiracial, biracial, with white as ancestry, in my opinion, folks that might claim white, Latina. truly really anyone who has absorbed some of the beliefs of whiteness, white supremacy, culture, uh, racism, that wants with the groups of whites to do that healing work. At least that's how I do white accountability groups. Would you talk more about how you work with whites? Because a year and a half ago, I had some clients that wanted to start mixed race and that'd been the work I'd been doing, partnering. And there was something about the moment in time. Uh, I don't know if it was just pre-pandemic. I don't know what it was. We were in the middle of 45, but at least the whites in the group were not ready, prepared and not demonstrated their skills, capacity. They weren't willing to listen. They were still real defensive and fragile. So I have moved to doing parallel work, mm-hmm. uh, white accountability and then BIPOC affinity. So what do you do? What do you recommend? And if you do the white work, what's some of that white accountability group work you do?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think that's such an important point, Kathy, because I think um, I find white people are very resistant to working in white-only spaces. I it's like when I'm like, we're going to get into a caucus, it's like, Arr! right, what? hold up. Because I think it feels counterintuitive. It feels like, and I, lately I've been hearing this wheel spinny of, um, I'm not the one to do this, you know, but I don't know how to do it. I'm not best suited, but also I'm not going to get up and leave the table and give up my space to somebody who is best suited. And it feels like another sort of manifestation of the self-indulgent way that we wanna feel like good white people, like we're doing the thing, but I don't wanna do it. I don't wanna take over, I don't wanna speak over. And don't get me wrong. I think it is really hard to navigate. There are so many conflicting messages, right? Um, I, I said, we need to center and follow and listen to. And if you're in an organization where you're like, well, the highest level person of color in this group is, is an assistant director. Um, right, or a manager, not a vice president, then how do we do that? And, and I'm not saying you should ask that person without any compensation to leave you all. Um, but what I think then has to happen is what you're talking about, where we um, as white folks engage with each other in truth telling and disrupting in honest accountability about why aren't, why is this table filled with only white people or um, other sort of white adjacent folks of color, right? I think um, you made an important point about, I think there are distinctions between and nuance within anti-Black racism and racism overall. And I think we really have to have a reckoning with anti-Blackness because I think a lot of organizations have elevated other people of color while upholding lots of anti-Blackness. And that is also not what equity looks like. so i think that i think that that simultaneous work is really important because again you know i think when we wrap before the break i was saying folks are saying i did this i can't, i i went to your listening sessions i shared my stories and nothing has changed and that actually feels even worse than when i just sat here and kept it to myself because i put my trauma on display um and i hear folks call that trauma porn i feel i hear folks call it like voyeurism where white people want to hear it and, and watch the videos that circulate online and then not actually do anything about it. And I think we have to be honest about the ways that that reinforces harm. And so I think this goes back to there's no one right way to do it. And so maybe the best work you can do within your organization is white accountability work to, to get your senior leadership, to get your organization to really be in a place where you can center and follow the leadership of people of color. Because the other trend that is happening is um, we're elevating all of a sudden, we're hiring a black woman into a senior vice president position when the organization is not in any way interested or capable of following her leadership and supporting her leadership. And then she fails. And then we have an argument as to why it didn't work. So we don't need to do it again. Um, There's actually, I've heard it called the glass cliff. I think we talked about that recently, right? It's, it's a phenomenon that's being written about, it's happening so frequently. Um, and elevating one person into a senior level diversity and equity position is also not what meaningful inclusion and equity and change looks like. Having a guide is, is important and valuable and one person can't change um, a, a culture of an organization. So um, one of the things you've heard me say about systemic change requires systemic response or systemic issues require systemic response, right? If we have systemic issues, societally, in our local communities, in our organizations, we need to think about structural and systemic responses to it. And one person is not a structural response, right? A grappling with policy, a grappling with culture. Um, One of the workshops that I I often do about is about how whiteness shows up at work, because Mm -hmm. um, the way I say it in a nutshell is I spent my entire career feeling incredibly comfortable in every workplace I've ever worked at. And what I now understand is the more comfortable I felt at work, the more steeped in whiteness the culture was, where we ate food that I was familiar with at, um, you know, staff gatherings, we went to places that I felt invited and included at restaurants or social events. Uh, we made decisions in ways that connected with me I worked with people who had similar interests with me. right. Um, And the time that I worked on the most diverse, there was a time I was the only white person on a team. And I was constantly like, I don't know what that means or what's this or what's that. And it was wildly uncomfortable. I would be lying to pretend anything other. It was the most uncomfortable I have ever felt at work consistently. And that's what equity looks like, right? White comfort has to be disrupted if we're really looking at cultural and systemic change. And I think that that's where it goes back to the healing stuff, because I think our capacity for discomfort and our ability to parse out the difference between feeling uncomfortable and feeling vulnerable versus feeling unsafe and targeted, those messages get really clogged, especially when we're not uh, aware of our bodies and the sensations in our bodies and those like deep uh, subconscious responses. And so to me, that's where healing comes in, you know, Navigating, you know, losing my mom and personal things had has expanded my capacity for difficult and uncomfortable situations and for vulnerability in ways that I didn't know would become essential to my work as a, a white accomplice and ally. Um, but I think that that's where those two things come back together. And I think that when white people sit with other white people and 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 in accountability spaces and talk about... This is uncomfortable. I know it's uncomfortable. I see you. You see me. How do we grow together? How do we support each other? That can be powerful transformational work. Um, And I think we have to get over the idea that if it's not happening with people of color, that that means it's wrong. Because if we're not trustworthy, then we're causing more harm. And I think if we centered harm reduction over what we think it's supposed to feel and look like, we'd find a different path
1: so powerful, centering harm reduction, and I hear white folks say, this is harmful to me, and it's like, actually, this is healing, to recognize racist attitude, white supremacy beliefs that are in you, let's honestly disrupt them, shift, you can reclaim your humanity, as you said, and actually partner with, so accountability, white, most white folks I know are not going to do this, I talk about getting this in the line of supervision, so that from the very top all the way down, we have clear expectations. It's built into the performance appraisals. What, what do you talk about around accountability and how are you helping organizations not have the glass cliff? And folks haven't heard Angel Howard. That was last month really talking powerfully as well. What are some ways that you see systems changing to increase the capacity, competency, not a nice thing to do, but it's a business outcome that you're required to do?
2: That's such a tricky question. Um, Most of my work has been in higher ed until the last year. And what I will say is um, working outside of higher ed has shifted my understanding of what change is possible. uh, Because I worked with a Fortune 500 company that in one quarter shifted 25% of their C-suite intentionally uh, by racial demographic um and in one quarter so in three months wow and and when i saw that it increased my frustration profoundly because it showed me what is actually possible and i think part of what accountability looks like is this is naming stuff like this and i think having been in higher ed for so long we're we're really self-righteous in this belief that um the way we do things is, and I'm like, if there was ever an opportunity for folks to embody change and be innovative and, um, and create something new, it was a year and a half ago. Um, And I, I quite frankly, I think higher ed as a whole missed the mark. I think we've really applauded ourselves because we were able to have professors switch to zoom as like, Saving everything and being innovative and I'm like, and, and I don't mean to minimize that professors have worked their asses off and it hasn't been easy and there's that's not structural change. Right that's make, making sure that you can still get collector tuition money and students are still getting access to classes, but this was an opportunity to rethink who we serve how we serve why we serve what we serve and what we stand for, and I, I think again um. To me, what the truth looks like, what accountability looks like, is being able to say, at this point, our unwillingness to change is a decision. Um, and it is an active decision that on a personal level, on a societal level, on a systems level, on a department level, any and all of those. You know, I, I said this recently that my um, unwillingness to name police violence against Black and Brown and Indigenous people as anything short of systemic state sanctioned violence was willful ignorance. Because it felt good for me to think of it as individual acts of violence as opposed to a system that is funded by me and my tax dollars to uh to create a culture of fear and terror right and i think that we have to start to name these truths what's really happening the decisions we're not making the actions we're not taking um and i think that that that's part of the truth telling that i think people are reluctant to want to do, because then I'm like, well, what does that mean about me? And that's where the healing part comes back in. So much of my healing has been about, you know, am I still enough? Am I a good person who de- but you know what? Like the only person who decides whether I'm a good person or not is me and my conscious and whatever I believe in spiritually. It is not the responsibility of any black or Brown person to decide I'm good. That is violence. And, and I think that, so the work I've been doing has sh- shifted it just even in the last couple of months, I have had more inquiries for, for coaching, particularly from senior level white women than I have in a long time. And I think it's because of this reckoning where folks are seeing like that we made these commitments and we're trying to do these things. And I, I know this stuff and I'm spinning my wheels because I don't know how to, integrate what I've learned and integrate what I hear. And I think that the integration phase is the hard part because that is, it's where the rubber beats the road. It's where we have to change ourselves and we have to change collectively to really start to do, you know, you do this with your hands often, where we do this, where we bring together in new ways. Um, And quite frankly, it's work that I'm excited to do because I think that, um, wonderful work happens in a big room when we're doing education. A lot of what I do is um, foundational, really making sense of how racism is not just interpersonal, it is systemic, how we are all complicit and in, in it and how we're all participating. Um, I do partner, I do a lot of that in partnership because I don't feel like I can ever be an expert in the impacts of racism And I have studied whiteness and I have been socialized into whiteness. And so we partner. My colleague often talks about race and racism. I talk about whiteness and allyship. And then we kind of work together on What does this look like moving forward? Um, And I think it's when those questions start to get asked and we have to start to swirl that that's when white accountability becomes so critical. Because if I'm swirling and I don't have anywhere to land, I'm gonna go back to the safety of what I knew, which is to pretend I didn't hear any of those things from that three hour session. But if I can swirl and I can reach out to you, Kathy, and say like, this came up and I am feeling all kinds of things because of this with my parents or this or whatever. And you can say, me too. That's where the magic happens, I think.
1: And do that healing work. And then now, let's, what's the peril in the organization? Because I want people to be clear. When you said white people look into folk of color to tell us we're good, when you said it was violence, you weren't saying folks of color withholding approval is violence. You were saying we demanding of people of color for us to let them into the circle of power. Just one tiny step, we are committing violence by demanding they do what we want, say what we want. Um, And I think that's
2: like another byproduct of this system. I think especially, you know, I was socialized as a a feminine girl, white woman, and I was taught from the youngest age to outsource my validation. If I could just be perfect and create harmony, then I was told that I was a good girl. I was doing good. I got straight A's. I got in. And and I think that that's to me where the healing comes in, because that is a deep, deep, deep rooted lack of self-trust and lack of self-agency that then manifests when I'm at work and I've been socialized my whole life to to need that validation to know that I'm good, that then I'm putting that on my supervisor, my colleagues, my peers. And when it's other white women, maybe we do that in really probably not healthy ways, but we do that for each other and the harm, the impact is different. But when I'm doing that to colleagues of color or colleagues who have other Um, marginalized identities where I have privilege, that creates a really harmful dynamic. And underneath it all, though, is shouldn't we all know our own inherent worth without needing to outsource it? And I think that's where the healing comes in.
1: And know that when we're silent and colluding, that's ours to sit with and then change. Because that senior white woman leader who stays silent as opposed to, you also said allyship has consequences. And so that senior white woman leader, white male leader, white trans leader who says, if we move in this decision to hire this person, we are not living into our commitment to dismantling racism. Mm -hmm. And the last eight people we have hired, only one has been a person of color. And so I wanna be very clear, while who you wanna hire has some competence, the person that I think is the most competent and the most person we need for many reasons, if you go against that, we are going against our core values, and this will have systemic reproductions. Mm -hmm. To say that, that clearly in a C-suite, which means the top leadership for higher ed folk, puts that white person's career on the line, Mm -hmm. because they may stay in that job, but they could be moved out. But the truth is, and If someone else agrees and if you've done your work beforehand so you're not the only person, that is standing up leadership change agent, the kind of courage, bravery that's needed. As we just close out, any final thoughts, reflections, hopes for leaders, hopes for folks that maybe don't have the positional power but want to be a partner in change?
2: Mm I, you know, I'm lingering on the allyship has consequences because that's a, that's a place that I do at my own self-check pretty regularly. Like what, what have the consequences been recently? And if they're not there, I often say like, if, if you're not experiencing any consequences, you're likely not actually engaging in allyship in the ways that you might think you are. And that sounds, I mean, this goes back to my rose-colored glasses, but the, the flip side of that is what comes with community and being an accomplice and being intertwined in a struggle where you're willing to put things on the line with and for one another is the most profoundly beautiful thing I've ever experienced in my life. And so I, I um, hearing you say it, I'm like, I, I can't, I shouldn't say one without the other. Allyship has consequences. And on the other side, there is such opportunity for what our world could look like because it is also exhausting to carry around the mask of white supremacy. It is exhausting to pretend I know everything all the time, that I'm dominant all the time, that I'm not insecure. It is exhausting to put myself in competition with people all the time. Um, And that's all a choice. Um, And so I do think we have to get honest about the consequences. I think that looks like consequences at work to your point. I think it looks like consequences with family where maybe I mean every time there's a family dinner somebody in my family calls me and tries to tell me that I should play nice at the dinner table and every time I remind them that like I'm not and if you don't want me to come and nobody's ever actually uninvited me and I've been moved off of committees and quietly not invited to lunches and dinner parties Um, and it looks like family like my kids have been at protests my kids have been um in spaces and my kids have sat on their ipad for two hours while i made calls for something or went to a training or a workshop and i think you know, I think we need to think about consequences across our lives that, um, you know, my, I think my kids are better for it. And the way that I raise them looks different because of the ways that I want to be in the world. Um, you know, I was just at an event, a school event yesterday and I like, I go through who are the people who are my Facebook friends because they're the ones who know. And, you know, are they gonna say hi to me at this thing or are they not? And those are some of the consequences, right? So, and I, like I said, I think the opportunity that we could live in a world where there is meaningful co- connection and joy and community and liberation is so beautiful. It is worth every consequence imaginable.
1: And you're balancing that with a liberation and healing. Last week, I developed a new handout you were one of, I think, five the white folks I sent it to. And so the community of white change agents, colleagues who will tell me the truth, friends, as well as colleagues of color, who will partner with just, I'm a different person. The more I do my inner healing work, the more I show up a partnership, the more I go out on a limb and say, here's what's next, mm-hmm. um, white people. Uh, what's next for you? How can people be working with you?
2: Hmm. You just took that big breath and you made me think about how you're the person who taught me how to breathe hmm. um, and planted that seed about connection. Um, and uh, I think what's next, I think collectively what's next is that, it's breath, it's connecting, it's it's reducing this um, barrier that we have in our necks that tries to keep our heads divorced from the rest of our bodies. I think what's next is breathing into, Um, What the truth really looks like and what we do about it. I think, I think the more people vulnerability is contagious so is courage I think the more white people who are willing to go out on a limb and say things like this is in my DNA. My family is responsible for so much violence and here's what I, how I wrestle with that, right? Um, I think then it, it gives somebody else permission to do the same and I think we can be a little bit like the match in that and doing that together and so I invite folks who are thinking like what's next to start being brave and talking more and knowing that you might I mean, regularly, someone's like, why'd you say it like this? Or you really coddled the white folks in that conversation. or And I'm like, thank you, thank you, because that is, that's what accountability looks like, and, and it's an investment. And so I think your points about having folks who will do that with you and for you and together is so important. Um, but I think unpacking the ideas of right and wrong and that there's one right way to do any of this is really important. Um, I am super excited about the, the, the blending of healing modalities and healing work and coaching with Um, bringing an equity lens and an equity mindset to things. Um, And so I am, I just opened up more opportunities for one-on-one coaching through the summer for leaders who are looking to do integration. Um, And not everyone has access um, financially, time-wise. And so I, I have created a kind of a membership group that will be um, at a what I hope is a really accessible entry point price point time commitment Um, but for folks who want to be in community for community learning for accountability for some healing for integration and and for I think momentum continuing to like what are we doing a regular check-in you can find information on my website about both of those things but um, those are some of the things I've been doing and of course Um, the workshops and the organizational change work is always so exciting to me. It is so fun to get to, to, well, not travel, travel virtually these days, but to get to be with different folks and see how different groups are approaching similar problems in different ways, I think um, it's just exciting and cool. So all of those are things that I'm doing these days.
1: So exciting. I want people to know in addition, this actually today is going out in email. So if you're on my mailing list, you'll learn about summer curriculum. I went through and found 12 webinars that I'm now making available to every couple of weeks. I couldn't get it to one because what I'm realizing is so many people exhausted, particularly indigenous and folk of color, uh, and some white folk and maybe many white folks given pandemic. And so how do we rest, heal while we keep momentum? Mm -hmm. Free resources, as well as lots more free resources on my website, drkathybarrett.com backslash resources or backslash events. Um, As we close, hopes. If you could wave a magic wand, what would your dreams and hopes be for all the white leaders in higher ed, nonprofits, corporate America, um, K-12, folks that are in criminal justice system, If you call it that, I could keep going. Government, what are your hopes for white folks in this moment in time? What's possible?
2: You know, that's such a complex question. Um, When I think the first thing I thought of when you asked me hope is my kids and kids um, you know, I heard my kids, the the beauty of Zoom school is you get to hear things. I get to hear things I wouldn't normally hear. And I heard my kids say, um, something about genders and colors, like colors don't uh, genders don't mean colors or colors aren't tied to gender. And just because a parent puts a kid in a certain color doesn't have to mean anything. People get to decide who they are and, and how they are. And I just, you know, this is a nine-year-old. And I think that, um, I get hope from knowing that it's possible because what I see is that if we give each other permission to think differently, it's possible. My hope is that it doesn't have to be the next generation that does that, that we can recognize that it's a little harder for an old dog to learn new tricks, but it's not impossible. And we can learn so much from listening to people that we've been told are supposed to listen to us. Mm -hmm. And that's kids. Uh, that's people, you know, people of color, indigenous folks. Um, But I think my hope is that people will breathe and realize that we don't have to experience the world behind a coat of armor. It can be different. We just have to be willing to take the first step and like imagine that and let it be.
1: And let it be and be different. Dr. Victoria Ferris, drvictoriapherris.com. I get that
2: right?
1: VictoriaFarris.com. VictoriaFarris.com. Thank you so much. I wish you and your kids and all, all the best. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear, Center for Transformation and Change Radio. We'll see you all next month. Take care.
0: You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change. Motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobeir.com.